uh, Jesus, I forget this more often than not, and I'm grateful for moments like this when I realize how absolutely 100% dependent I am on you for life. How I just don't have what it takes to figure life out. This universe, this world is so immense and complex. But I get to consult with and talk to and engage with and pursue the one who created and sustains it all. The one who the course of history is moving towards. And the same, that same one is the one who says, you are mine, Randy and I. And I am yours. It's too much. Your heart is just, it's too much. It amazes me. So would you continue to bring just a fresh revelation of your heart for your bride? For each individual in this room listening online. No matter where we are, no matter what we are doing, no matter what sin we're struggling with, you just come to us and say, I'm yours and you are mine. Welcome home. And so now we just ask, Holy Spirit, would you bring revelation, revelation of Jesus, clear picture of that glorious King and Savior. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Most all of us have been to concerts, right? The older we get, I've noticed, I've been reflecting on just like, I'm getting old. <laughs> Grace and Elliot Lund moved yesterday. It was really fun. We moved them, and I was moving around big, heavy things, and I felt like a dead man walking yesterday afternoon. I, in my 20s, I could do that and go play tackle football. No big deal. I'm getting old, and I go to less concerts now. It's kind of a young person thing to do, but for us old people, remember back a couple decades ago or whatever, or some of you maybe are fresh out of a concert you know that feeling when you're walking into a room, and maybe it's a smaller venue. My favorite venue is Pat, the Pabst Theater, where it's just kind of small, and you're, you're anticipating seeing the main act, the headlining act, and there's this, just this buzz in the room. And then the opening act starts, and the air gets left out, right? It's like, oh, geez, come on. Every once in a while, you get a good opening act that's like, whoa, how about these guys? This is fun. More often than not, you go to a show, and the opening act just kind of takes all the anticipation out. It's like, I'm anticipating you being done with this song, and hopefully it's your last song, right? You've had, have you had that experience? I feel like the, we're about to dive into Revelation 2 and 3 this morning, second and third chapter of Revelation, and I feel like many of us look at these two chapters as kind of the opening act of Revelation. We're the, the opening act. Everyone knows why we're here, right? Why we're excited to... We heard about, maybe we're new and because we, we're here because we heard that Bruce City Church is talking about Revelation. Holy cow, no way, let's go. <laughs> or maybe some of us have been here for a long time and we've been bored going through Hebrews and John and whatever. Revelation, this is exciting. And everyone knows why we're here for Revelation. It's not for these little letters to these churches that are all practical and useful and great. We're here for the beasts. <laughs> right? I mean, we're here for the dragon with 
seven heads and ten horns, and we're here for the, for the beast that comes out of the water, and we're here for the beast that comes out of the earth. It just arises, and it looks like a leopard, and it's got feet like a bear, and it's got a face like a lion. I'm not making this up. That's why we're here. We're here for this book that we've kind of seen as the, the weird, macabre horror movie at the end of the Bible that we could never understand. That's why we're here. Or maybe we're here because we've spent most of our Christian life obsessing over the beasts and the harlots and the dragons and the horsemen and all that stuff in the eyes and the wings and all the business. And we, we spent our life trying to crack the code and decoding revelation and obsessing about the end times and when we're going to get raptured out of here. And so these couple of chapters of revelation that are really annoyingly normal we do one of two things. We either just kind of jump over them like the opening act and we wait for the main thing, the beast to come out of the water. Or some churches, you'll find, if you Google Revelation sermon series, you'll find all sorts of sermon series on the first three chapters of Revelation. All sorts of them. But you'll find very few on the rest of Revelation. So this is either a section of Revelation that we either skip over or it's the only section we give kind of Wait to biblically, because it's the only section of Revelation we can understand. So this morning, we're going to begin the first of two weeks when we're going to be looking at these first, the Revelation 2 and 3, where Jesus, this living word, addresses seven churches in Asia Minor, modern-day modern Turkey. And he's got particular exhortations and encouragements and things that he's pointing out that he wants to see developed. And friends, if we skipped over this part to try to get to the crazy, amazing, apocalyptic, awful stuff, we'd be missing everything about Revelation because there's, hint, there's stuff in here there's, that are foundational for understanding all the rest of the things. What we're about to engage in this morning are, are ways to help us understand the craziness in Revelation, okay? Last week we started in Revelation 1, and for those of you who weren't here, there are a couple of really important things to keep in mind as we're going to be walking through the book of Revelation. And the first two things, these first two things I'm going to repeat over and over again because they're so important about re what Revelation isn't and what Revelation is. First thing, Revelation, remember we said this last week, Revelation is not a book about the Antichrist. Revelation is a book about the living Christ. We Christians have obsessed for centuries trying to figure out who the Antichrist is, what political leader that would not on our side, or what evil person's the Antichrist. The fact is, is that the words Antichrist are nowhere to be found in the book of Revelation, even, we th even though we think that's what it's all about. See, because the book of Revelation is not about the Antichrist, the book of Revelation is about the living Christ, the one who is, the lamb who is conquered. Also, the book of Revelation is not about how to get beamed out of, raptured out of this crazy, chaotic world. The book of Revelation is all about how to live as a faithful witness to Jesus in this crazy world. The book of Revelation is not a little clue as to when we're going to finally get beamed out of this place. It's a, the book of Revelation is an encouragement and an exhortation to live as a faithful witness to Jesus, the Lamb of God, right while you're still, right while your feet are on planet Earth. 
and things seem like they're spinning out of control around you, Jesus says, I'm still calling you to be my disciple, to be my follower, to represent my kingdom. That's what you find in the book of Revelation. And then last week we talked about this really important thing that's really important to keep in mind as we walk through Revelation, and that is this, that we treat this book as if it was 100% revelation I'm talking about. We treat Revelation as if it was 100% written to us because we're in the end times, right? And we kind of, we, 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 the book of Revelation, this was a real letter written to real people. But what we do is we kind of, and I got this from Matt Brown, who's teaching the course on Brew You, the course on Revelation, go to that the next two Saturdays. He's going to go way more in depth than I have the opportunity to go, go in depth. But this book would have been read, read aloud almost 2,000 years ago to seven churches, a circular letter. And it's as if we transport back in time, and right as the letter's about to be read to the church, we go, hey, that's for us. Sorry, guys. Um, I know you were looking forward to hearing about this amazing vision of Jesus who's encouraging you in your right now space, but that's for us. Thanks. See you later. We're zooming back to the future. This was actually written, the book of Revelation was written to a group of seven churches who desperately needed a word and a vision of Jesus and from Jesus. It was written to a real group of people, a real church and it's first and foremost for them. And yes, there are things in Revelation about the end of all things, or really maybe about the beginning of the new creation. This beautiful, there's stuff in there about that. And yes, we can learn from these early churches, but it's first and foremost for them. And that is a, the most important thing about understanding the book of Revelation. And then last week, we got this beautiful vision, John's vision of Jesus. A big and amazing, profound, awe-inspiring vision of Jesus. We're going to finish our time looking back on that Jesus. This Jesus with eyes that burn like fire and his face shines brilliantly like the sun. This Jesus who John, when he saw him and was approached by him because his, in his voice sounded like roaring, rushing waters and waterfalls. When John saw him, he fell flat on his face and felt like he was dead. What we're going to find, friends, as this series unfolds, as, this book of, as, we, as we engage deeper and deeper into the book of Revelation, is John is going to challenge our vision of Jesus. Because what I've been finding as I've been studying and living in the book of Revelation is my Jesus is too small. My Jesus doesn't match the Jesus of Revelation. And if it did, I would be filled with so much more faith because of that Jesus that I worship, the real Jesus. I would be filled with so much more worship on a daily basis that that's my Jesus. He's not this kind of slight, hippie-ish, bearded, American-esque looking guy who walks around and is kind of crunchy. He's this big, bold, beautiful Jesus who inspires worship. So here's a question. I, I have a... I sometimes have a love-hate relationship with sermons, which is weird because that's what I do, right? And I seem to be really passionate about it. My paycheck helps me out because of it. But I've got this love-hate with them because I, I've got to tell you, I feel like sermons is this time that we just expect sermons are going to happen, and we do because we, that's what you do in the church. And if we didn't have a sermon on a Sunday morning, you probably wouldn't come. And sermons kind of turn into this time to where, where maybe, let's, let's see if he entertains me for a half hour or 40 minutes. 
If he goes beyond that, definitely not happy. And it's just kind of this thing that we do. It doesn't do a whole lot in us. And I got to tell you, if that's what sermons are to us, friends, I'm done. I don't want to do it anymore. See, I want to do this. I want to walk through the book of Revelation together and study it and preach it because I want it to transform who we are and transform the way we see Jesus. Are you willing to be changed? Are you willing to have your vision changed of Jesus by Revelation? Let me say that again in the right order. Are you willing to have your vision of Jesus changed and challenged by the book of Revelation? Are you willing to actually pray differently to this Jesus because of the vision of Jesus in the book of Revelation? Are you, are you, are you hopefully going to, are you willing to change the way you worship? In the, the, are, you, are you ready to be filled with awe and wonder because of the Jesus that we find in the book of Revelation? Are you willing, not even just on Sunday mornings, but are you willing to be, have the amount that you seek this Jesus, be changed by this Jesus because of who he is, who we find him to be in Revelation? Are you willing to have your idea and your concept and your vision of Jesus changed a little bit, rocked a little bit? If not, this is just an act, entertaining act of futility. So we're going to dive into Revelation 2 and 3. What we're going to do, this is going to be two weeks. This week we're going to think about the big themes, what we find. There's three major themes, three, three main themes in these two chapters, themes that are going on in the church. Jesus sees the church in Asia Minor, in modern-day Turkey, and he's looking at the churches, and he's, he wants to personally address them because he's got some particular things. He wants to encourage them, and he wants to challenge them and call them into repentance and change and renewal, and he wants to tell them what's ahead. And so rather than going verse by verse, you can, if you have your Bible or if there's a Bible in front of you and want to, you can just open it up to Revelation 2 and 3, and you can kind of just survey it. We're going to look at the three main themes that we find woven through all the letters to these seven churches, okay? What are the three main things, themes we find here? Because, friends, we need to keep these in mind because these three main themes are going to help us unlock in under, the understanding of the book of Revelation. It's going to be foundational for us. The first thing, the first main theme that we find running through all these letters to the churches in Asia Minor is that this is a persecuted church, persecution. Again, like I said last week, we have a hard time understanding what persecution is, but you can see from the, from the way Jesus speaks to the churches and addresses their situation, they are a persecuted group of churches. Let's read. Let's just do a little sampling. Jesus says to the, this is Revelation 2, 8, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write this, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty. This is real people now. Imagine sitting in a in the pews, and this is describing you. You're, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but they are a synagogue of Satan. Now, that's weird. What, what's going on there? Say they are Jews but are not. Christians at this time in the, in the early church, they still saw themselves as a sect of Judaism. They saw themselves primarily as Jewish, but who found the Messiah in Jesus. And so he's saying there's a group of people who are saying they're Jews, but they're not. They're sending God saying, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, though, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Can you imagine getting that word from the Lord? Bruce City Church, I've got a word for you. 
a bunch of you are going to be thrown in prison in the next couple of weeks, in the next couple of months. Some of you might actually die because of Jesus. But be faithful. That's intense. Let's go to another, to the church in Pergamum. Another major, these are all major cities in Asia Minor, in modern-day Turkey. These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. That's basically, that's a picture of the word of God, the words of Jesus. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. Now, what does that mean, where Satan has his throne? Pergamum, as a city, in the middle of Pergamum, this city, had a big mountain in the middle of it. Big mount. And on that mount were a couple of temples, a couple of pagan temples. One was a temple, you can, the archaeologists have dug this up, you can go see this. One was a temple to the Greek god Zeus. And they would sacrifice and worship there daily to keep Zeus happy. And the other, another temple there was a temple for Caesar, the ruler of the Roman Empire. And they, would, they had a temple for worship of Caesar where they'd sacrifice daily to him and they'd worship this man, the ruler of the world, Caesar. And he said, you did not, re imagine being a Christian in that kind of circumstance, in that kind of a city. He, Jesus said, you do not renounce your faith in me, not even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. A member of the church that everybody knew, who is well, well known, maybe a leader, was killed because of Jesus. This is a persecuted church. Do we have one more, Matt? To the angels in the church in Philadelphia, not on the east coast of, of, of the U.S., but in modern-day Turkey. These are the words of him who is holy and true and who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. So you have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, although they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, are you hearing these words, patient endurance? Be faithful even to the point of death. This is a church that was persecuted. And it's that reality is going to help us understand the rest of Revelation so much if we can keep that in mind. First major theme through, the, through these letters is this is persecution. This is a persecuted church. Second main theme in these letters I've just did this research for you, is accommodation, what biblical scholars, a word they use called accommodation. The American church can't, understand, can't identify with persecution, but we can sure identify with accommodation because by accommodation, I mean, they mean this. They mean the early church, these churches, they, they were in the midst of the Roman Empire, the greatest empire of the world, and in the midst of all this pagan religion and worship of Caesar, and Jesus is calling them to live out a unique gospel witness, kingdom people in the midst of the world around them, but what they were doing was they were sliding back into their old ways. They were sliding back into the ways of the empire, accommodating their faith and turning their faith into this kind of Roman, worldly, empirical faith that looked nothing like what Jesus died for. And Jesus is warning them and saying, you guys, there's nothing unique about you anymore. And you're walking in sin and you're going to walk away from me if you're not careful. Let's get a little sample to, to the angel in the church in Thyatira, write this. These are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are blazing like fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Just so you know, this is who you're talk, who's talking to you. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance. 
and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I hold this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality, into eating food, dedicated sacrifice to idols. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of their ways. I will strike her children dead. Whoa! Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. The word of the Lord. Who is this gal Jezebel who's headed for a bad time. Who's this woman? What's going on here? The book of Revelation, remember, is full of imagery, symbols, metaphors. And Jezebel, most likely, scholars believe, isn't a real woman. It's actually when as soon as as soon as John or Jesus mentions the word Jezebel, the ancient hearers of this word would instantly go back to the Old Testament and say, "Oh yeah, I remember Jezebel." She was this foreign woman who the king of Israel named Ahab took as his wife. And in the course of their marriage, she wooed him into worshiping foreign idols, false idols. Baal is, what they, is specifically who they worshiped. And then he led the people of God, Israel, into, he enticed Israel, God's people, into worshiping other gods. And it turned out awful. And these pagan temples, these pagan gods often had, most often had temple prostitutes in them. And as an act of worship, as part of the cult and ritual, you would go to the temple and you would do whatever you wanted with the temple, temple prostitutes. And Jesus is saying, I see you guys. It seems like there's a group of people who are kind of embodying the spirit of Jezebel, enticing the church to go back into the ways of pagan idol worship and engaging in the, with these temple prostitutes. And Jesus is saying, I see you. I see, I'm with you. I, I walk through those doors of that temple with you, and I'm, I'm right there when you're doing that stuff with them. I see you thinking that you can worship me and worship Caesar and worship these false gods. It doesn't work that way. Jezebel's a metaphor, and it's also metaphor, it's metaphorical when he says, I'm going to put her on a bed of suffering, and her, I'm going to kill her children. That's metaphorical, but it is a real warning to the church that the one whose eyes burn like fire sees you. And I expect more. Let's see one more about accommodation. To the angel in the church in Sardis, write this. This is Revelation, the beginning of Revelation 3. These are the words who hold the seven spirits of God. Again, that's just seven is a number of fullness and perfection that embodies the one spirit of God. And the seven stars, I know your deeds, that you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up! Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have, it, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Had, hold it fast and repent. Change. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. I've called you to be this beautiful people who embody the gospel in the, in the lost world around you that needs it so desperately, but you're acting just like you used to act. You're acting just like everybody else. You're walking in the way of the empire rather than walking in the way of my kingdom, Jesus says. And this is going to be a key to understanding the book of Revelation as we move forward. Main themes, persecution, accommodation, and here's the last main theme in these letters that we find, 
conquering, conquering, conquests. Now, our ears perk up a little bit. That's a good one. All right, let's, let's check out some. What we find through all of these seven letters is after every single one, there's this encouragement that if you actually obey my words, you are going to conquer and be victorious. Let's just look at a little sampling of them. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And instantly they're like, whoa, that sounds nice. Let's go ahead. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you, we read this, in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you your life as vic your victor's crowns. Whoever has ears, here's another one. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. To the one who is victorious, will, the one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Doesn't say anything about the first death, though. Let's keep going, Matt. Let's go all the way to the last one, please. This is to the church in Laodicea. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right, listen to this, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. After every letter to these churches, Jesus says, there's victory ahead of you. I will give you the power to conquer everything and any, anyone who hits, sets themselves against you. I will, you will overcome the evil of the Roman Empire. You will overcome persecution. You will overcome sin. You will overcome poverty. You will overcome all these things, and you will be victorious. And us good old Americans say, yeah, that's what we do, baby. We win. Sign me up for conquering and victory. Situation normal. But did you notice how Jesus said the church would, would get that conquest and that victory? He said, yeah, you're going you're gonna to be victorious if you, per, if you persevere even to the point of death. Here's the way of the Lamb that we're going to find over and over again in the book of Revelation Jesus is calling the church to walk in his way, in the way of the lamb. And the way of the lamb always winds up victorious, always winds up conquering his foes, but the way of the lamb accomplishes that victory through his blood being shed through his death. Always. And he's saying, would you like to enjoy my victory? Would you like to conquer with me? Would you like to sit on my throne with me? You're going to have to be willing to die. See, because the way we think this, this book is bloody and is all about battle and Jesus slaying his foes. Do you know how Jesus slays his foes? By dying for them. He says, church, I know you might live in poverty, but if you persevere, you're going to be rich and abundant. I know you might have longing and you might have hardship in this world. Can you persevere? Can you push through it? Can you push through that sorrow? Can you, can you be faithful through that desperation because there's victory on the other side of it? This is the way of the lamb, the way it always is. And now I want to finish with this, something that I've been arrested by all week as I've been studying this, these two chapters. It's the first verse. In the first in Revelation, the second half of Revelation 1, John has this vision of Jesus and his eyes are burning like fire. His voice sounds like roaring waterfalls. And just the mere being in his presence make John fall on his face and felt like he's dying. 
this Jesus. And Jesus says this in Revelation 2.1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I've been arrested by that vision. Now, this is, Jesus is talking symbolically here, and he says, I am the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. What that means, he translated that for us. He kind of told us what that mystery is. The seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches. That means that there were angels watching over those churches. That, in and of itself right there, makes me kind of take a deep breath. That tells me that maybe moving forward through history, even now today, God gives angels to the church, maybe the church in Milwaukee, maybe just Bruce City Church, because there's supernatural things happening around us, and there's supernatural beings dead set against us, trying to get us to be divided, trying to get us to compromise the gospel, trying to get us to, to, to do all sorts of things that would rip apart and destroy us, but there's an angel assigned by God protecting us in the supernatural realm. That gives a little weight to what we do here, doesn't it? And then he says, this is the words of he who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, does that mean that the king of kings and the lord of lords kind of walks around in this heavenly Ikea for kick kicks? Some of you guys are like, that sounds like heaven to me. <laughs> sounds like hell maybe for some of us. <laughs> Jesus said the seven lampstands, the seven golden lampstands are the seven churches. And Jesus says, these are the words of him who walks among the churches. That thought, friends, has stopped me in my tracks this week. Earlier this morning, as, as I thought about this reality, Jesus is here. I couldn't think about it without welling up. I felt like I could weep. Jesus is saying, I know all this stuff about you guys. I know all, all the good things that you do because I'm here, I'm present, I'm right with you. I see your deeds. I see all the goodness. I see all the garbage, too. I see your weaknesses. I see the ways where you fall short. I see your sins. I see ways in which you reject me, in which you forget about me. I see how you've turned into a church maybe who's lost their first love. You're just going through the motions. You don't have any affection for me anymore. I see you being a church who's just kind of checking a box now. I see it because I'm here. Jesus walked among the churches. And I want to tell you, friends, we're sitting here in chairs, listening to someone trying to keep your attention, but I want to tell you, know this, right now, Jesus is here. He's in this room as we speak. He sees you. He sees your heart. He's here right now. And what that does for me, friends, is it fills me with more awe and worship than I can even contain. More gratitude. That Jesus, we don't have this God who's, who sits in his heavenly ivory tower from afar, kind of wagging his judgmental finger at us. He is here, present, just like you are. And that means that the prayers that we pray can actually be prayers of faith and boldness because the presence of Jesus is in this room. 
That means that the worship that we fill this place with can be big and bold and beautiful because Jesus himself is in this room. That means that we can actually walk in faith and seek after this Jesus because he's not just in this room. He goes out with us. When we gather in homes, he's in the room there. And when we go out our separate ways and we get scattered and we go in our neighborhoods, in our apartment buildings, in our dorms, in our, in our workplaces, Jesus is there walking with us and among us. Amen. It fills me with wonder that we have the privilege of having Jesus in the room. And then it also fills me with a, with a healthy amount of fear. And by fear, I don't mean I'm filled with dread and anxiety. By fear, I mean it fills me with this feeling of waiting. There's a weightiness to what we do. When we talk about being the family of God, being the church, walking that out together, engaging, this idea of Jesus walking among us, being in this room, that's a reality. And then I think of conversations about kind of taking church lightly, about going when it's convenient for me, about engaging when it works for our, my lifestyle. I think about just going through the motions. And Jesus says, I want you to know, this is not, I'm not calling you to go through the motions. I'm here in your presence, and that should mean something. What is the reality? I'm just asking, don't answer out loud, but just think, what is the reality that Jesus is in? He is right now in this room. What does that do to you? It makes me want to say, worship team, get your butts on stage so I, we can worship this Jesus. <laughs> so we can be filled with, with awe and wonder and tell Jesus, who's in this room right now, we love you so much, Jesus. Let's stand. Jesus, we love you so much. We're so glad you're here. Would you refine us like you desire? Would you call us into more life? Would you, Holy Spirit, would you empower our worship to be full of spirit power, to be explosive, to heal things and break things in the spiritual realm, to tear down walls, to, 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 to break walls that have been up in our lives for far too long. Would you come, Holy Spirit, and fill this room with love and worship for Jesus? The Jesus of Revelation whose eyes shines like the sun. Who says, I am the living one. I was dead and now I'm alive forever. As we worship, friends, there's going to be a couple of my friends in the back of the room with badges, name tapes on. They would love to pray for you if you need prayer about anything and at all. Remember who Jesus is that we're praying to. And then let's fill this room with some worship for Jesus who's in this room.